the strange thing about video is that um, it's a non—it's a um, non-rivalrous resource. But the only business model we have for it is basically kind of keeping it, <laughs> keeping it locked down and keeping it scarce. So I found—I I kind of found that there was a lot of. Um, Strange. I had a lot of strange feelings about the industry I was in. I started reading about um, open source, about free software, um, about these kind of ideas, and thinking, "Hey, this is this is a really nice idea." And, and just looking at the the model of Wikipedia and things like that. But there was nothing like that in my environment, my friends and family, the people I worked with. If you use and value free and open source things, you can surely lay out the benefits and joys of using them. Yet. There's a whole world out there, a, a big world, in fact, that does not use such things and doesn't understand why you should, and perhaps making it even more difficult, they get lost or stop listening as soon as you start to explain. And just to clarify, this is more than just the question of hardware or software. It applies to so much of what we do and what we use in this life. Today on the program, with the help of the very prolific Berlin-based New Zealander Sam Muirhead, we get into the world of free and open source video, clothing, offices, economies, and much more. From Wikimedia Deutschland, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, and this is Source Code Berlin. One of Sam Muirhead's many interests, which he does professionally, in fact, is video, specifically video produced using open source tools. Now, back in 2005, as a new and curious podcaster, I joined the ranks of video bloggers around the world who sought to make regular video entries about a whole range of topics. Many of us back then would try to adopt open source tools for video, and the experience at the time drove everyone right back to the commercial programs that are still dominant today. Has the question of open source video come a long way since then? I started by posing that question to Sam Muirhead. Uh, it's still not an easy switch for somebody coming from the proprietary, um, uh, from kind of using, um, you know, Apple and Final Cut or Avid or um, uh, After Effects and Pro Tools and things. It's still not just a kind of you can just switch it out and just from the first day be, be doing things exactly as you were before at exactly the same speed. It takes a little longer to get used to these tools. I mean, now I use only um, only free software for my, my entire kind of workflow for video, um, from Magic Lantern and the camera to KDN Live for editing, um, Synfig and um, Audacity for animation and audio and things like that. And, and that works very well for me. Um, I don't, there's still a few things that need to be ironed out for working in a larger context. So if you're working in a big post-production house, you need to, you know, the editor needs to export a file to send to the audio people. Uh, they need to get graphics from the graphics people and reincorporate that. All of those workflows do still need a bit of work, and luckily there are projects like the Blender Open Movies, which are trying to address those problems, trying to work out how to use free software, use open culture um, in a way that's more kind of more professional, more collaborative um, than just one guy working alone on a laptop. As someone who specializes in Libra video work. What organizations or groups of people out there are interested in your work and what you have to teach them? Um, so there's been a, a few different kind of directions. One example is um, uh, Wikitofal. So, so this is um, uh, one from, from Wikimedia Deutschland, um, who basically they wanted to um, 
start using video a lot more in Wikimedia Commons and um, on Wikipedia itself. And so obviously they want to use um, free software tools for that. Um, so some of that is coming from the traditional free cultural side of things um, and uh, also doing workshops with, for example, Edge Writers, which is a fantastic network of, um, of interesting people, um, mostly based around Europe, activists, artists, hackers, and things like that. And I think people are realizing that video is a very important skill to learn. Um, everyone needs a video on their website these days. So um, people want to upskill and having readily available um, free Libra tools to, to do that is, is very valuable. But there is also an interesting um, development happening. Uh, I was in talks to do this, but it didn't actually um, come through in the end. But I was approached, for example, by um, some people down in, in Munich, where obviously Munich has gone entirely free software with their, their um their government. So that means that all of the different departments um, are now using free software. So it's not just switching to LibreOffice, but if people need to make training videos and things like that, um, then they need to be using free software for that as well. And so um, there's more and more of these kind of organizations that are realizing, okay, we need to upskill in this area. Um, we need to get the best out of the tools that are out there and, and learn how to use them. And so I get approached by um, those kind of organizations as well. Um, and there's more and more governments and, and those kind of organizations switching to free software. Now, around the world, uh, for the past 10 years at least, numerous municipal, regional, and even national governments have gone open source. Uh, examples like Venezuela, uh, the state of Kerala, India, the White House even, uh, the Czech Postal Company, Iceland, closer to us perhaps, uh, the government of Munich. Now, slowly, all these major institutions around the world, they've tackled that shift, right, from Windows to Linux or from Microsoft, Microsoft Office to, to OpenOffice. But I'm wondering, beyond these behemoth institutions, right, what projects have you been watching in different corners of the world that relate to using, for example, open source video? Um, there are some interesting uh, developments. Certainly, um, there's a, a group of people that are working um, with uh, open source Juba in South Sudan um, that want to set up a um, an open source uh kind of um, production house there as well, using open source tools. Um, there's a number of people in Brazil who are also working in this direction. Um, uh, some guys made a, uh, a short film using this open source hardware, Elfold camera, um, some of the work that the Apertus um, cinema open source cinema camera team developed on it, and also using uh, Blender and Cinelera to cut that. So there, there, is, there is quite a lot of um, stuff happening elsewhere around the world. I haven't um, done a huge amount of traveling outside of Europe in this area, so I'm, I'm looking forward to discover a little bit more. Let's dare to turn now to the huge and complicated world of making films. How much impact have the kind of tools you're working with, and of course, the increased possibilities to reach audiences directly, or even the overall spirit uh, of public and open licensing, what impact has that had on the making of movies? The problem at the moment, I think, is that although we have these great Creative Commons licenses and things like that, I think people kind of expected that once we brought out these licenses, you know, now we've got a copyright solution, therefore this amazing open culture of uh, free films will, will pop up. But the thing is that films are still very expensive to make. They um, still cost huge amounts of money and time and resources and people and equipment and software. Um, and this is getting, uh, we're basically slowly starting to change that, but we really need to change the actual business model of how films are made in order to um, kind of make 
free culture business models more and more usable. So if you look at software, for example, if you took a project like Adobe Photoshop and just slap the GPL on it and release that for free, then obviously that would that would not really work out that well for someone like uh, Adobe um, because they haven't they haven't used the benefits of uh, of open source development. They haven't built it on all of these open source um, components. They haven't saved themselves research and development by by kind of using community input. Um, all of the things that make uh, the development of free software possible haven't been used to develop a project like uh, like Photoshop, and so it's very expensive to develop it. And so obviously they they kind of do it in a in a commercial way. Um, and I think it's similar with film. If you're going to be spending um, you know a hundred million dollars on a film, then putting a, a CC attribution license on it and giving it away doesn't really make much sense. It doesn't really kind of um, work that well. And so we need to find um, basically ways of uh, being able to compensate people putting time into making films, making films cheaper, um, being able to share kind of modules, much like the Blender Open Movies are doing. They're, they're sharing kind of 3D files, they're sharing workflows, simply to make it easier for other people to follow in their footsteps. And when we have more of that, it's cheaper to make films, and then we can also um, use the, the opportunities of free culture a lot more. Often when we talk about personal missions, especially the kind that are not about making big money, but rather about these higher callings, like helping people become more free or independent, somewhere back there is always this question about money and funding. And because surely someone's thinking this right now, how do you, Sam, uh, keep yourself funded? And do you stick to that hardline approach when it comes to free and open source tools or or nothing? My own work's a little bit different because, I mean, I pay the rent by uh, usually doing um, paid videos a lot of the time for open organizations. So um, for the Open Knowledge Foundation, doing videos for School of Data, or I made an animation explaining freedom of information for Frag den Staat, the freedom of information portal here. Um, and working for the, the UNDP and things like that, making videos with edge writers. And so I'm working with open organizations and I'm getting paid for a service of making a video for them. And that videos, those videos are all, are all free culture, obviously, but my business model isn't so kind of radical, you know, it's, it's, it's not like, um, this, this totally new paradigm. Um, but there, I mean, crowdfunding is, is very interesting, but I think we're kind of, it's losing its sheen a little bit. We're, it's not quite as exciting as it was a few years ago. And also it's somewhat lacking in uh, the kind of responsibility um, of, of uh, basically pe people who are making films um, a lot of the time, they can kind of say one thing and then deliver something else. Um, and the uh, audience has no way of saying like, hey, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't what you promised. Or things are delivered late or they're not delivered kind of to the same level of, of quality as people might have expected and so uh, there seems to be kind of we need something a little bit more with more of a long-term emphasis um with a little bit more um uh kind of maybe something like incorporating some kind of reputation um model in um funding or looking at i mean there is an interesting project at the moment called uh snowdrift.coop um which is kind of like a um patreon for uh, free Libra projects. So that's definitely an interesting project to check out. They're still just getting started at the moment. I've always liked this kind of idea, but I just didn't really know it existed. Um, you know, five, six years ago, I was, I was working in the film industry. I was working on big 
productions like Power Rangers, for example, over in New Zealand. Um, and that's a, a very strange environment because it's, it's a very hierarchical environment on these film sets. You know, it's very kind of based on the military almost. Um, and uh, you're basically working... Um, for a, a business model that is entirely copyright based it's it's i mean the 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 strange thing about video is that um it's a non it's a um non rivalrous resource but the only business model we have for it is basically kind of keeping it <laughs> keeping it locked down and keeping it scarce so i found i i kind of found that there was a lot of um Strange. I had a lot of strange feelings about the industry I was in. I started reading about um, open source, about free software, um, about these kind of ideas, and thinking, "Hey, this is this is a really nice idea." And, and just looking at the the model of Wikipedia and things like that. But there was nothing like that in my environment. My friends and family, the people I worked with, um, none of them had kind of really got excited about this stuff. Um, none of them knew about open source except for maybe you know using firefox or, or using wikipedia and, and that was the extent of it so from making videos as part of the traditional power ranger fueled media industry to then making videos with non-proprietary tools to eventually the open it agency so the open it agency is uh four of us we started it a year ago um here in berlin um so it's me and uh Lars Zimmerman who's he's an open source economist he's been really focused on kind of studying and experimenting with open source and um also kind of sustainability in the circular economy and modular design for about um 5 years now he's got an artist and a philosophical background but has kind of moved into research into um business models for open source hardware and things like that we've got alex sure who's a um he's a free libra activist and he does like he's a cnc expert and makes amazing open source hardware um and yeni otelia who's an artist and designer and she's very active in uh we share and other kind of community building projects um so we've got a range of different um focuses and we do a range of different things as well so um we offer community planning, um, community building workshops for open source hardware projects. Maybe you're a hobbyist, you've developed some kind of interesting project and you, you want to get other people's input on it. You want to be able to kind of build a community around it. We can kind of show you, um, what brings people in, how to, um, kind of offer, um, what attracts and motivates people, what you need to be offering to a community to allow them to kind of grow around your project. Um, and also we've, um, spend a lot of time looking into various different open source hardware business models. So we're mostly focused on on open source outside of software. There's already a lot of people that, um, <clears throat> a lot of people and services and companies that focus on uh, open source software and the kind of business cases for that, um, the various different ways that you can develop it. We're more interested in a more experimental approach in terms of where else can open source succeed. Um, and so we're also organizing events um, where uh, uh, we're organizing meetups and things. Um, and yeah, we're kind of a multifaceted little group. Moving on now to clothing and copyright. You've been busy for a few years now in the area of non-proprietary clothing. How did you get into this and tell us about your experience? Yeah, uh, so that was part of my um, year of open source project, which I started in uh, 2012, when basically I wanted to um, document the process of somebody coming from a non-technical background, um, so with no background in software uh, or anything like that, um, as they kind of explored the open source uh, world. The reason I wanted to do that is basically because um, 
I felt that people really wanted to, uh, or I, I wanted more people to understand open source. And a lot of the time when you say, you know, open source is great. Look at the, the Linux kernel or the Apache server. People kind of think, ah, software. I don't know what he's talking about. Um, and they, they turn off. And so if you start talking about more everyday things, if you start, um, uh, kind of connecting it to different aspects of people's lives, different experiences they may have had, then people will listen a little bit more and people will start to understand the various different um, uses of um, uh, of this open source idea. And so a couple of those areas were um, to do with clothing. And the reason I was particularly interested in clothing is because when I started the project, I thought it was all about copyright. You know, I thought open source was, was just copyright licenses and everything else came from that. But of course, with clothing, that's that's not the case at all. There's there's very little copyright or IP in the whole world of clothing. You can make as many copies of your shirt as, as you want. You can sell it um, uh, at, your, at your local shop. You know that's that's all totally fine. But even though there's there's no copyright restrictions, we don't have this uh, free and libre, this this really collaborative distributed model where people are sending designs around. People are saying, "Hey, I developed this thing based on that person's design." Um, that culture doesn't exist in clothing. So I found it a really interesting example. Um, and I did a couple of different projects there. One of them was looking at um, how uh, how we can use computers to make um, clothing a little bit more personalized. Um, things like we don't have you know 3D printers for, for underwear yet. Um, so I thought maybe I can show kind of elements of digital um, fabrication um, for something like underwear, um, also because it's a very relatively simple piece of clothing. Um, and uh, so I worked with a local co-sewing space in Neukölln called Nadelwald, and there's a um, very talented tailor there called Svanti Event, and she basically showed me how patterns worked, um, explained a little bit about um, uh, how to how to sew, well, taught me how to sew, um, and everything like that. And then... Uh, with some help from um, a couple of software developer friends and so, uh, a friend who taught me some algebra, I basically created a, um, a little parametric design of um, some boxer shorts. So you basically type in your waist measurement and it will adjust to uh, to fit your your size. The idea with that is basically that human bodies come in more sizes than just small, medium, and large. And, you know, there there is this parametric design available for large corporations. You know, H&M uses parametric design, I'm sure, to, to fit their designs to different um, shapes. But that's not really where parametric design flourishes. It's best when you need to develop a personalized solution. So we should have this kind of design for um, all of our personal goods. We should be able to personalize them to our own particular use cases, our own particular shapes and uh, and, and lifestyles. Um, and so that was one of the um, the projects. Another one to do with clothing was one that I did with um, a mutual friend of ours, um, Fabienne Serrier. Um, and she is a hardware hacker, and uh, she's one of many people who have worked on the um, the brother knitting machines from the 1970s, basically reviving these things, um, bringing them back back from the dead uh, through open source development and reverse engineering. And what I really liked about that story, um, one of the kind of the key aspects that I wanted to tell with this project, and what I'm still struggling with now, is that people are very attuned to stories about individuals. Um, people like to have a story where, you know, um, a lone hero battles against evil, you know, kills the monster and gets the princess. This kind of very simple storyline is, is very, very common. And what I like about open source is that it's more about 
um, the kind of the victories of, of the collective. It's, it's, it's all about all of these people working together, each of them putting in a small amount and together um, building something wonderful. And so what I wanted to show with the project with Fabienne was this, this process. Um, so when I approached Fabienne, this, the brother machines um, had been about four years in the making in the, in the, this kind of revival of these brother machines. Um, Steve Conklin, Becky Stern, um, and Fabienne and a few other people had all done a little bit of tweaking. They'd um, managed to kind of talk to these old machines that managed to emulate floppy disk drives and managed to send digital um, images to them so that you weren't stuck with your old designs from the 70s and 80s. So they'd already made them really useful, and this development is still continuing. People are kind of um, recreating, the, rebuilding the brain of these machines with an Arduino. They're 3D printing new parts for them, um, and building graphic user interfaces so that anyone can can understand them and use them. And I really love this development. And so I wanted to do a project where I built on work that other people had done to create my own personalized development too. Um, it's very cold in Berlin in the winter, obviously, so um, we made a, um, a hat together. So I used a, a template that Fabienne had already developed of a, um, a hat, how to knit a hat. I took designs from the Public Domain Review, um, fantastic website resource of uh, amazing um, uh, images and texts and music all in the public domain, some old snowflakes from the 1800s, um, turned them into a design, put a QR code in my design as well, um, brought that to Fabienne, used her template, we printed that out on the machine, turned it into a hat, and then this hat you can basically scan with a smartphone, scan the QR code, and that takes you to my website where you see the source code for the hat. You see all the instructions and how you can make it. Um, and the, the problem for me, that one of the main problems with the, the Year of Open Source project was even though I wanted to try and tell this collective story, when I would talk to journalists about it, for example, they would say, oh yeah, that's, that's a very nice story. And then the article would come out and it would be like, oh, look at this, this clever guy in Berlin that made a nice hat. And I was trying to say, you know, I, I did very little in this process. All I did was take a design that existed, take a template that existed, slap them together, and with a huge amount of help from somebody who really understands this machine, I put it together. Um, and I wanted to tell that as a collective story, but it's very difficult to kind of force that um, into, uh, into the mainstream media. Um, so that's still a problem to be solved. <laughs> It so often comes back to the classic media problem. Uh, the story needs a main character or a leader to focus on, and things have to be simple and rapidly consumable. A story about a group of people doing interesting work on a larger social question that's being asked uh, about how we live life. That's too complicated for the prevalent commercial media standards. But hey, that's, uh, that's why we've got podcasts.
it seems like no coincidence that from what I see, just as the technology, the tools that we need to make our own, for example, clothing using software and hardware, just as this attracts more and more people, we also see a resurgence in interest for all things secondhand or all things made by hand. I mean, the whole slow movement I was listening to a recent edition of the Scavenger Life podcast, a, a program about finding and selling secondhand stuff, and the topic was fabrics and clothing and how valuable raw materials have become and how sought after they are. And these are materials that were last popular back in the 60s and 70s when movements like the hippies commonly made their own clothes because, well, one, there was the philosophical reasons, but also the big name brands hadn't yet co-opted their styles. So again, it, it seems like this all happens now for a reason, and it's no coincidence. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you mentioned the um, this this idea of maybe it's a coincidence. I, I don't don't think it is at all. I think it's just a you know that old cliche. It's an idea whose time has has come. Um, for example, this this uh, boxer boxer shorts project. Um, you know, making parametric designs so everyone can make their own clothing. This wasn't a unique idea that I had. Many different people um, have had this idea, have developed it in lots of different ways, and uh, many people are doing this open source as well. Um, so one fantastic project that came out of um, uh, that's that's coming out of the free Libra community is called the Valentina Project, and that's basically exactly that idea: parameterized um, designs. Um, and they're doing it as a proper software program where you can kind of have lots and lots of different options. And so these kind of little ideas and these little experiments that lots of people are doing around the world, um, many of them are being picked up and, and, and turned into real solutions that makes it easier for, for lots more people um, who don't kind of have lots of spare time on their hands to be able to get involved in, in making things. Um, there's basically as the the infrastructure builds up around them as um we have more kind of fab labs available in cities as we have more um easy to use software as more people kind of solve the difficult problems for things like hacking um knitting machines it just becomes uh, a lot easier for a wider range of people to be able to do it if you know five years ago when the first people hacked those knitting machines it must have been a you know month-long project of uh, hacking away with all of these wires nowadays you they have them in many fab labs um, you can go in you can kind of get a quick tutorial you can read a few things online and you can get going very quickly um, and so it just means that a much wider range of people are able to do it and that also means that there's a much wider range of ideas that can be expressed with these machines as well because people with different backgrounds will all put in their um, uh, their experiences their ideas into them and we get a much more vibrant um, kind of amount of, of projects coming out of them so a little bit of background. Uh, in the 1970s, there was this Swiss architect by the name of Walter Stahl, and he coined the phrase cradle to cradle. And he was talking about incorporating this philosophy of reuse, repair, and extend the life of products within industrialized economies. So he would go on to found the Product Life Institute in Geneva, which was uh, a consultancy. It was focused on sustainability. These ideas inspired what would later become known as the circular economy, uh, a title that since the 80s have made the rounds, both as a philosophy and as an objective, and actually also as a, a marketing campaign, depending on which case we're looking at. If you fast forward, in 2002, there was the publication of the more technical manifesto, Cradle to Cradle, 
Remaking the Way We Make Things. And that was by German chemist Michael Braungart and the American architect William McCunna. And what followed that book was this renewed interest in cradle to cradle or circular economics. Uh, even though the its implementation, that's up for debate and interpretation uh, around the world, it seems. I mean, I just noticed the, the Chinese state-run coal company Datung Coal uh, back in 2010 declared that the circular economy was one of its guiding principles, a coal company. Uh, let's try and get back to the roots of the issue. I just wanted to give a little background. Uh, Sam, how do you explain cradle to cradle? So the idea of cradle to cradle or circular economy, the idea that when you manufacture something, you're manufacturing it for um, uh, for, for reuse for every part of that um, to have a, a second life that goes onto a, basically the, the output of every manufacturing process feeds the input of another. So if you're developing a product, when it's at the end of life, when it's no longer being used, um, then you can take it apart. Maybe the parts are modular, they can be reused and other things. Maybe the materials are uh, easily broken down. The process of turning them into new materials is well documented. Maybe they serve as um, food for the growth of um, kind of mushrooms or something like that that can be used for packaging. You know, all of these different uh, approaches have been have been talked about for a long time. But it hasn't yet become much of a practical reality. You do get a, a few small scale uh, little hacks, just things like um, there's some people in Berlin who are uh, growing mushrooms to sell in supermarkets, which they're just going around collecting all of the used coffee grinds from cafes and they're um, doing this in some dark basement in Schöneberg. Um, and that's a really nice little story. But I wish that all of our products were kind of designed in this way where we're looking at um, what is currently waste in our present day economy and turning that into food for um, production processes. But it's somewhat utopic when you just kind of um, talk about it and hope that it's going to going to happen somehow. Um, companies like Nike, for example, have tried to develop a cradle-to-cradle shoe where on their own they tried to put together all of the um, uh, materials, try and find ways to recycle those materials and things like that. But unfortunately that's just a very impractical way to get to a circular economy for that to happen a company like nike would have to know um, everything about the manufacturing process the, the chemical makeup of these materials they need to know how and where these shoes are going to be used they need to know how they're going to be disposed of um, they need to know how to kind of they need to have the infrastructure to bring those um, parts back for for disassembly and things like that um and it's a very impractical way, a very slow and complicated way of developing a circular economy. And so our idea, um, uh, we as the, the Open It Agency, working with a team in Paris and a team in London as well, um, our idea is to promote the idea of an open source circular economy. Um, so these kind of processes are a lot easier if you have a transparent um, flow of information, if you're using open data, um, if you have open standards, um, and if you're using um, open source software that is easily kind of interoperable, um, that is easily shared, if it's a, an open process that anyone can kind of look at the whole chain. So if I'm trying to develop a product, I can put my whole um, uh, workflow, my whole material flow out there for anyone to look at. And people from the waste disposal side of things can look at that end of the chain. People from the material science side of things can look at that end of the chain and they can all kind of point out problems. They can all offer solutions. They can link me to people in other industries and things like that. Um, the kind of the, the metaphor that we really focus on for 
um, this idea of an open source circular economy is that a lot of the time when people talk about a circular economy, they kind of talk about the, the beauty of nature and you have, you know, a tree grows in this nutritious soil and then uh, its leaves fall down, it dies and it decomposes and becomes part of the soil for, for new trees to grow, which is a, a lovely little little parable, but it doesn't tell the whole story at all. Really, for that to happen, you've got all of these ecosystems of um, bacteria, of insects, of animals, of weather conditions, of atmospheric conditions, all of these kind of things are contributing to that cycle. Um, and we can't try and develop a circular economy by thinking about it in simplistic, closed-off uh, terms like that, that, that we can't develop things just as kind of we'll develop one product and that will turn into another product and we have a nice, tidy little two-product cycle. Instead, we need to think about this as an, uh, a modular ecosystem where we can link up inputs and outputs from throughout the, the economy. This brings us to a project you're involved in, uh, Open Source Circular Economy Days. While corporations, as you mentioned, pay lip service to the goal but can't or won't implement uh, steps, you're bringing together people and organizations who are committed to making actual strides towards the goal. And this is not just another conference or even a, a party, as I understand it. Uh, tell us about the event, which is much more than an event, and also how it works. Well, that's the kind of the strange thing is that uh, circular economy is a, a buzzword that is often used by these large corporations that isn't really a, a grassroots movement so much. Um, there are related grassroots uh, movements, but we've kind of taken that um, that uh, word, which tends to be used by companies like Philips or by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and things like that. And they're, they're kind of making a few small, slow steps in this direction. They're doing a lot of talking about it. They're using it very effectively in their in their branding but they haven't created a circular economy. Um, and so what we are trying to do um, is we've got a, an event called the Open Source Circular Economy Days, which is coming up in June. We haven't set the date yet. Um, but basically this is a networked event happening around the world where we're going to have representatives from some of these larger companies. Um, but most importantly, we're also having open source hardware hackers. Um, uh, we've got um, open data specialists, um, software developers, artists, activists, basically bring them all together in these um, networked events. So in Berlin and London and Paris, um, but we're also talking with people in uh, Barcelona. Um, I'm going to New Zealand uh, next week and I'll be talking to some people there as well. And basically the idea is to get um, for a few days, a bunch of people talking about this, a bunch of people working on these projects where we set real challenges from um, uh, local organizations or local companies who might have a um, sustainability problem or who might want to fight, have a better way of assessing the life cycle of their product or who might want to experiment with making their products more modular for reuse, making them easier to repair, basically doing a whole series of uh, workshops and prototyping and um, talks and discussions to uh, get people thinking about um, the circular economy as a goal and open source as a method to get there. Um, so basically we're, we're still building this process at the moment and we're getting in touch with a lot of different organizations. Some of them are larger companies and some of them are small local operations. So hopefully that'll, um, develop some, some nice interesting collaborations between them. I mean, also if you're, um, if you're developing something when you're trying to do something sustainable, then you don't want to kind of 
bring everyone fly everyone to berlin you know it's it's much better to just have everyone where they are and um use the communication tools that we have available um to be able to be connected but still be working on um local issues with local people um and just be able to share the information another case that comes to mind uh Back in 2013, in the city that I call home, Amsterdam, a social enterprise called Fairphone started producing mobile phones after years of researching and raising awareness about where the raw materials for our phones come from and, and how they're manufactured. Now, today, they're well on their way to having sold something like 100,000 fairer phones while continuing to research and find alternatives to the conventional and, as we know, often harmful supply chain. What I'm wondering is, is Fairphone an example of a company that is truly committing to the values of an open source circular economy? Yeah, and I, I really like the Fairphone model as well. I mean, I've, I've got a Fairphone too, um, and I, I think it's a, um, it's a nice project. It's not perfect, but what I like about them is that they've got a very clear goal, um, and they want to build a Fairphone. They want to have a phone which um, kind of... Uh, which is more environmentally, more socially sustainable, um, which uh, respects the freedoms of the user and things like that. They're not there yet. They've made a couple of steps along that way, but they're very open and transparent about that process. And so they're kind of saying, These are where we want, this is where we want to get to. If you have suggestions, please give them to us. These are the problems we're encountering along the way. And what's good about it is that it puts pressure on the rest of the, um, the electronics industry as well. If they're, if they're trying, if they're kind of talking about this stuff, then that should make us look at other electronics companies and, and make us think, Hey, why aren't you guys doing this as well? So hopefully we can do something similar, um, with, uh, with our project as well. Lastly, today, uh, a question I do ask to all of my victims. So much of what you do seems to be independent of geography, yet there you are in Berlin. How important is being based there to your work and your interests? It's, it's definitely very useful being central in Europe. I'm, I grew up in New Zealand myself, um, and uh, at the time I, I wasn't very aware of much going on in terms of um, free software or open source hardware in New Zealand. I'm, I'm going back there this month, so I'm looking forward to... Um, you know, knocking on some doors and saying hello and, and discovering it a little bit more. Um, but what is great about being in Berlin is that you have this easy access to all of these other communities um, around Europe. There's all of these conferences going on. There's um, all these interesting events, things like um, 31C3 in, in Hamburg uh, last month, just being able to go up there and have access to all of these incredible ideas, meet these these amazing people. And of course you can get a whole lot of that stuff online. You can learn a whole lot online, but the, the real kind of personal connections, the, the lasting ones, they often happen face-to-face. Uh, -face. And so it's, it's nice being in, in Europe for that. Um, Berlin itself as a, uh, is also very good for developing um, projects in this area because, for one, it's relatively cheap, um, but it's also got a, a very interesting culture which kind of, and maybe it's got um, historical background as well. I mean, since since World War One, there's been um, very intense um, political engagement here in Berlin. There's also been huge uh, swings one way or the other as well. Very, um, there's been a lot of really good examples of um, <laughs> the nasty side of uh, when people kind of get too much power or when people. Um, when bad laws uh, come into effect and things like that. So there's a lot of political engagement here. There's a lot of people watching out for um, uh, 
for their their civil liberties um, being infringed upon things like that and um, when you combine that kind of political aspect with the fact that there isn't the intense uh, financial pressure like you have in a place like London for example to just go out there and earn a whole lot of cash because you need to pay your huge rent and living costs and things and when you combine that with the the artistic scene that's in Berlin as well um, it it creates a very interesting little community um, where there's a lot of people that are that are keen to develop um, open source projects one uh, one problem with um, specifically open source hardware that I've noticed in uh, in Berlin there are a number of people working in open source hardware here um, and they are uh, regularly meeting at the open X lab uh, meetup in uh, in the Mozilla headquarters um, is that one thing that, that I've heard from a lot of people is that the regulations in Germany make it quite difficult to develop um, uh, open source hardware here or, or to go from that kind of prototyping phase through to um, actually having a having a product. Um, it's just a little bit, it's, it can be a little bit complicated. Um, and so also there's no... There's not a great deal of industry in Berlin um, since since World War II. Um, there's been very little, and so it isn't like a place like Shenzhen where you've got all of this overflowing um, industry. You've got all of these people there, all of these parts. There's competition amongst suppliers. Um, you've got very lax uh, IP um, laws, things like that. So the development of interesting little ideas, the very fast development of um, from from idea to product can happen very quickly. In Berlin, it's a little bit slower. Um, so, but there's there's also a little bit of time to think about other kind of um, social issues that your your product might um, might have involved in it as well. So, there's good and there's bad. So, in the end, geography does matter. Sam, thanks for joining us. We'll keep an eye on your work and the build up to Open Source Circular Economy Days 2015. Wonderful. Thanks for the invite. It's great talking. Sam Muirhead is a videographer exploring free culture, free software, open hardware, open education, and open knowledge. You can find him at cameralibre.cc, yearofopensource.net, and of course, as part of the OpenIt Agency at openitagency.eu. So today we started with cameras and video and moved to offices, but then ventured beyond technology into everyday matters of raw materials, boxer shorts, and economics. Because when it comes to freedom and being locked into a system, those questions have found their way into places in our lives that we may not even be conscious of until someone comes along and shows us. Hopefully you enjoyed and learned something along the way. I know I did. That does it for this edition of Source Code Berlin. Thanks to all those who've emailed or commented on the program via the website, Twitter, and Facebook. Source Code Berlin is a Wikimedia Deutschland podcast. You can find us at sourcecode.berlin or follow us on Facebook, Source Code Berlin, or on Twitter at SRC Code Berlin. Retweet, follow, tell your friends. Music featured on today's program was by Jazafari who you can find on the Free Music Archive. This podcast is published under a CCBYSA 4.0 license and edited by me. Until next time, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. 
Thanks for listening. We are.